One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello and welcome to episode 144 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. My guest on this episode has a completely unique story from music journalist in the time of the jam to showrunner and co-creator of a music TV show that has featured Paul Weller more than any other artist. Mark Cooper is my very special guest on this episode, another stunner of a guest. What a storyteller. We dive into the early days of the jam as punk and new wave hits the US, finding Mark as a student over there who starts writing about gigs stateside. He then lands a job back home for Record Mirror, reviewing albums and singles, interviewing bands, musicians, singers, songwriters, including Paul Weller. And then we hear this incredible story of later with Jules Holland, from its creation to its build into a musical and TV institution, and so many stories of appearances and collaborations from our podcast subject, Paul Weller. This is a real absolute corker of an episode. Let's get into it. Mark Cooper, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Dan. Hello. <laughs> so lovely to have you here. Look, we're going to talk Record Mirror. We're going to talk later with Jules Holland and your incredible book and the story of that. But so much to cover here. Uh, I don't know how we're going to cram all this in. But hey, let's kick off, of course, with The Jam. Because before Record Mirror, I think I'm right in saying that you you actually saw them before you started reviewing for Record Mirror. Would that be right? Well, I think so. They, the Jam, I was living in California in from early uh, summer 77 and uh, studying at Santa Barbara, University of California at Santa Barbara, and after a year and a half, and British punk and new wave bands started coming through. They were, you know, they'd do the tours where they'd play six cities, jet in and out. And one of the first bands I believe I saw was the Jam's first show at the Whiskey in, I think, autumn 77. Uh-huh. I have a very clear picture of it in my mind. And Three very young. Remember how old most rock music was at that time. And obviously the jam were fantastically young, suited and booted. The energy and the, the focus and the passion was so different to anything in California, with the exception of the slightly starting to emerge 
punk scene with bands like X and the Germs, etc. But I don't think I'd seen anything else from Britain at that point. It's the first gig I was going to go on to review was the Sex Pistols in uh, Winterland in San Francisco in January 78. So in my mind, this is before that. And the Sex Pistols was the first one I reviewed. And then very shortly after that, I saw the jam again at the Starwood in L.A. The tours came pretty quickly in those days, pretty quickly and pretty relentlessly. And, uh, yeah, I found the review of them at the Starwood. Yeah, last time the jam played here was back in November at the Whiskey. They rushed through like an express train at a disused station. This time they're at the Starwood, a large disco with sunken bars and sunken floors. So... I started writing about music. This is one of my earliest reviews, and 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 one of the great. It was a great subject because it was about the collision between the new energy coming out of the UK and a California scene that was, you know, dominated by Supertramp, Fleetwood Mac, Journey, etc., and a very small emerging club scene in LA that had its own punk thing going, but was kind of aping still the UK. And of course, because I'd left the UK to study in, in, I had to make my own impressions of what was going on in the UK because I wasn't there. But obviously, I had a sense as a Brit abroad of what what the world they were coming from, what what the jam represented, and how novel they seemed, how fresh. It's really interesting you say that because Paul recently on Sunset 2020 album and. The song on Sunset talks about the whiskey and talks about those days. And Paul in interviews was talking about like remembering he hasn't visited, hadn't visited since those days, since those gigs. And his son's now living in LA. So he'd gone back and he was looking down the strip and remembering the stuff, but, but thinking, God, this has gone by in like in the blink of an eye almost. And there we are now talking about that gig. It's incredible because <laughs> the lyrics of the whiskey and that are in that song. Wow. Well, um, and they kept coming back, you know, in the time I stayed in the US till late 1980, autumn 1980. And I saw the two or three times more again in my memory and i'm not sure i certainly saw a gig in oakland uh in 79 or 80 and in my memory they were on with the ramones which seems slightly incredible but uh, i'd have to ask paul you'd have to ask paul if that was true but they obviously kept growing at a rate of knots you know i, I don't know that any band has grown quite as quickly maybe the who in their early days with paul's vision and you know his uh, the concepts, the sense of more and more they were taking on the English class system. You know, that wasn't probably immediately apparent at the whiskey. They were just very urban, very mod and very new and very fast at that point. Whereas, God, they got so rich so quickly. And mm. I got all those records. And um, weirdly, I was probably, I'm probably seven years older and, you know, obviously more academic and middle class, etc. But they just felt like a New England. And, and Paul represented that to me, his songwriting and his presence and his intensity, you know, and it felt they were invigorating, hugely so. There's obviously talk of the jam not cracking America, but your experience was that the, the crowds were up for it, the, the gigs were well attended? Well, quite well attended, the gigs at the Whiskey and the Starwood, because there was a kind of little nascent English scene behind Rodney, Rodney Binghamheimer and the other people who championed, uh, you know, and were kind of English-loving hipsters. There'd always been a small scene in L.A. like that. They just didn't get very much beyond that because... American AOR rock was very overblown, very melodic, full of grand gestures. You, you know, we all know the feeling. And the jam felt like the opposite of that. They were a short, sharp shock in contrast. So while I think the Seensters were fascinated, you know, the broader radio landscape didn't make any sense of the jam, despite the fact they kept coming back. And, you know, they worked hard. I, I remember John Weller always rushing around and organizing. And I remember going to some sort of press conference at their record label in America and they'd 
you know, des- it's not that they didn't work hard. I just don't know that they made sense in America uh, early doors. And then their subject matter was so English. You know, I mean, there is a subway system in L.A., but, you know, down in the tube station at midnight, I don't know that it resonated too well. And Paul was writing about his own landscape. And so I think the Americans who cared admired that, but most it didn't resonate or make any sense to most people. So you talked about starting to write. So you, you're over there studying, but you start to write for record mirrors. How do you get that gig? Is it just something that you, because email is not a thing. So what, you're having to send these over? I had a friend who was the news editor at Record Mirror who I'd been to college with and he asked me to review the Sex Pistols because I was there on site and that, as I say, was January 78. And once I started, I thought, oh, I'm in a unique position here and also it gave me a kind of focus alongside the studying and teaching. So I was in Santa Barbara. I'd drive 90 miles down to the Whiskey and to the Sunset Strip or the Starwood or wherever, uh, review a show in some beat-up old car and then drive back up to Santa Barbara the same night. And gradually I built it up. So I became, and you know, I went up to Bay Area, San Francisco quite a bit. So I built up a sort of Californian correspondent sort of role over a few years did some interviews. I stopped for a while because it was a bit of a shock. I, I felt very idealistic. And inevitably, as a stringer on the West Coast, you end up writing about everybody from Peaches and Herb to Judas Priest to The Jam. And I was very invigorated by The Jam and Ian Jury and The Pistols and the whole punk new wave scene. And very quickly, when you're writing for money, it's slightly different. You know, you have to have an all-round overall view. So I stopped for a while because I wasn't quite sure about that. But then I realized I love writing about all music. I was interested in all music. And the job of a writer is to observe, not just to to participate or sign up to one particular scene. And being a bit older anyway, I probably had a broader overall view of music anyway. So I worked it pretty hard. And they offered me a staff job back in the UK in uh, autumn 1980. And I came back for my sister's wedding and then wrote full-time for the paper for the next two and a half years. Then went on to Number One magazine, which was the new pop format that's a rival smash hits launched by IPC. Did that for about a year and a half. Wanted to see how records were actually made. I carried on writing for people like City Limits and then quite soon after Q magazine. But I took a job at Virgin Records and worked in A&R and publicity, worked on Madness and Working Week and other groups and worked with them and then Polygram internationally the old label that would have brought the jam over, and then got offered quite randomly and very luckily a job as a researcher on a TV show called Wired in 1988, which was the first TV thing I worked on. And at the same time, went for an interview to the BBC for The Late Show, which was their starting arts and media show. First person who took the job then left a year later, and I started the BBC in January 1990 on the late show, booking the bands and and artists and making short films about the music scene. So the love of music has continued throughout that entire period. I mean, that is at the heart of pretty much everything you've done, whether it's the documentary making or Jules Holland's show, Glastonbury. We'll get onto all these things in a sec, but that love of music is inherent within you, yeah? Oh, totally. Uh, uh, You know, and had been my main focus probably since I was about eight and first heard, I don't know, Love Me Do or something. So... Yeah, I mean, it's just I never conceived of working in music or doing it as a job. And, you know, in a way, that fateful call, can you review the Sex Pistols and and bands like The Jam coming through L.A. sort of gave me an opportunity to do it. And once I'd started, I loved it. 
I love I love the world of musicians. I love the stories, and I already had a you know I love to read about music, get a sense of its history. So I loved a, a sense of the, the culture, I suppose, and that's never left. There are moments with the jam in '82 where you review the gift for Record Mirror, and obviously that year leads up to ultimately to to the band splitting. And through your writing, through there's an interview that you did around that time as well, July the summer of '82. And I'll see if this can spark some memories. It was called "One Man and His Misery." Paul Weller of the Jam. <laughs> yeah, I jam. found that piece. I think the subtitle is "Women Wine W H I N E and Song." And in my review, and I reviewed them live as well, and in that interview. You know, Paul was a hero of mine, but there was a real sense of a man drowning in, I wouldn't say depression, but misery, you know, and struggling, you know, for the music to mean as much to him. And I guess ultimately, you know, feeling very frustrated by the jam's audiences that he couldn't expand and change that, you know, he meant the people booing the support act or, or chanting for the jam the whole way through. So I think I think he'd started to feel very constrained. And I think also he, I suspect he'd found an earnestness in himself, which the interview I did with sort of quizzed him about and teased him about, you know, mm. to my shame, used the, the expression is heart as big as a gas works. And it was slightly taking the piss because I think Paul was just drowning in his own earnestness his own sort of puritan drive you know and he, i think he himself knew he, he needed a new aesthetic and he has the courage you know to do something about it uh, and in a way to in a, in a very sort of neil young like way to sort of strike out on his own and a completely new path you know i said i started to write for record for number one and record mirror had become one of those small a4 rather than you know the big old enemy side newspaper that it had been before and that there was such a change in British pop music, which again was fascinating. And I think Paul kind of found his own way to get with the program with the Style Council, didn't he? You know, this was a band very much concerned with image and uh, they were more about, about soul and about having fun. They were playful. Paul were playing, you know, with androgyny, with, with jazz, with the French. All these things came in that. And I don't think it was just a career move. I think he genuinely, and the interview with Paul when he was still in the jam in 82, you could feel somebody reaching a kind of dead end. Yeah, and you certainly, when you read that, you get a sense of a number of things, actually. Gary Crowley's talks about the jam being the people's band, but Paul talks about, at that moment, it feeling like this disconnect between him and the audience, the audience and the band, where he he wanted to move forward, wanted to do things. You mentioned like the support acts and stuff being booed and, and the football chants and all that. And it felt like whilst... The band members maybe could have embraced that type of music that he went on to with the Style Council. I don't feel that the audience would have let him do that with the jam and move into the areas that he wanted to move into. So you get the sense, like you can understand from that, that article. I mean, that comes just months before he makes that decision on the holiday and tells the band, or literally like a month before he tells the band that it's all over. You've got to remember how they were in such a unique position, the jam, and they were so successful. I mean, they were the number one British band. They had this kind of heavy responsibility in a way is that, Felt like the only band who'd really survived the punk period with their integrity and their politics intact. But I think that became a really heavy weight for Paul. And I think it became like a duty and a responsibility rather than about the music. And 
Yeah, I think he felt enclosed by his audience. And, and I think to this day, there are people who go to Paul Weller solo gigs who just want him to play the old songs, want jam songs. You know, he talks about in the interview he gave my later with Jules book, you know, where he does an interview about his experiences with later. And he says, you know, people don't want new music. A lot of the, my audience doesn't want new music. And, you know, there's always a great home run at, at Paul's gigs where, you know, he'll play some of the classics, some jam songs, some style council songs. You'd do something to me but what drives him clearly is the next piece of music you know he's an artist and, and the music keeps flowing and i think that must be really stultifying and and that's why i have so much respect for him because he's never blinked he's just kept going and he's the most driven artist i think i i know and i certainly think from in the later period of you know which started in 1990 till now he's the most single productive british artist innovating questioning himself and and also making the music i won't say churning it out but you know continuing to make you know music that's different and challenges himself and there is no one else compares from the from the punk era when he emerged who's done that so hats off to him Let's talk later with Jules Holland. This fabulous book that you put together as well, 30 Years of Music, Magic and Mayhem, based on the BBC programme that you were you know, a huge part of for, you know, for so many years and, and creating this thing with, the, um, with Jules and, and others. But this idea when it first came about was to create a show that ultimately would feature people that we know and love, <laughs> the legends, but also to introduce us to new music. And obviously that continues to be the brief for the show because uh, we're all introduced to so many new bands through that. It was to kind of give artists a, a home that they didn't have on TV. They weren't they weren't represented by On Top of the Pops, for instance. That you know, These weren't bands necessarily that had chart success, for instance. No, uh, and also, you know, music TV had kind of ground to a halt in the late 80s. The Tube and Old Grey was test had stopped and the BBC had launched, you know, it was kind of the era of youth TV. So they had the, the Death 2 strand in a early evening on BBC Two, like in shows like Rapido and Snub for the indie kids. But there wasn't a sort of live performance uh, show in the tradition of, you know, the whistle test. As I say, the tube had ended and Channel 4 were seeking a new vehicle. That's when I started on Wired, the show I did before The Late Show, which gave birth to that later. So um, there was a dearth of places for bands just to come and make their statement and be themselves artistically. And and uh, in the interview I do with Paul in the book, you know, he talks about, I think, you know, when he started doing his solo comeback, you know, probably was it Into, Into Tomorrow, maybe, on that first record, they went on top of the pops and they had to mine. And they'd swore, him and the band swore to themselves they'd never do that again, that, that that was the end. And, you know, you look back at Paul's checkered TV history on the BBC and there's some astonishing Top of the Pops performance. <laughs> yeah, the not miming. Only, yeah, yeah, not yeah. only by him, but by so many other artists yeah. who are, you know, almost treating Top of the Pops as a joke and, you know, so clearly want to be live bands. And, uh, you know, they take the mick out of Top of the Pops and the, and the experience, but it must have been so dissatisfying. So Paul says that when later came along, you know, it felt at last, here's a show that cares about music, that takes it seriously. And the show grew out of the late show where we used to have all kinds of different music on different, you know, we'd have different, we'd report on different strands and genres of music for everything from, I don't know, old jazz to new folk to the latest indie band to B.B. King to, I don't know, Julie Cruz. So anything that seemed interesting and worth reporting on in, in, in a slightly sort of broadsheet sort of way. And I suppose the idea of later was, why can't we have all these different musics in one room at the same time? And then 
Janet Fraser Crook, the, the director who, who evolved the show with me and with Jules, came up with this way of shooting it in the round, inside out, with the sense that the viewer should be the person closest to the artist performing, that Jules would be the kind of uh, magic ringmaster who would walk around the room introducing people, but that the best seat in the house through the cameras would be the audience. And... We started it October 92 and um, it was very difficult to do technically. The camera crew kept bumping into each other and getting in each other's way. And uh, Janet had to, you know, imagine, I still can't quite imagine her mind to this day because I guess she was like the queen spider in the middle, you know, with all these having a sense of the space and having to arrange it all in the head so people didn't crash into each other. And so she could get cameras in position to transition from one artist to another. So at first it was a little awkward, but but from the first it had a kind of uh, musical eclecticism and a concern, yeah, to introduce brand new artists and also not to be completely driven by record companies to, to look at music, whether it's world music or folk music or jazz or music even that's unsigned, just to not follow a major record label agenda but have its own editorial agenda to have integrity really because my experience of working in, on Wired and my general sense of TV shows that they were a bit beholden to record labels and I, th I felt music should be broader and more interesting than that and so did Jules and you know record labels aren't necessarily interested in what's gone and they might be chasing what's coming. Jules and I both being older had an interest in the heritage of music as Paul does, you know, the 60s acts, the, you know, some of the singer-songwriters or, or whatever that, you know, maybe have fallen out of fashion, but if you're going, lucky enough to go and see them in a small club, feel like they changed music history. So the first show had the Neville brothers from New Orleans who were le legends and, you know, Aaron Neville singing Tell It Like It Is from 1962, but it also had a, an a cappella new vocal harmony group called uh, New Colours and a brand new British multicultural band called D-Influence and The Christians. Only four acts at that point, but very different stages in their career. And that show was kind of themed. And at first, I thought that later would run by, I'd theme each show, you know, be a country inflected show or whatever. But quite early on, I, I realized that was terribly constraining. And actually, the pleasure of later could be the, the kind of clash, the musical, the mix of music that is wildly different. And also because we wanted to enjoy very different genres and in a way say, look how much music is out there. The show became very quickly about the contrasts between very different genres and saying, check this out, you know. One of the interviews in the book is with uh, Alicia Keys, and you know, who came on later three times and, and loved the experience and said, you know, when I'm on the floor, I keep saying, who is this <laughs> about some of the other artists? And I think Gregory Porter says the same thing. That, and it's a great driver for the show that the artists themselves, if they themselves care about music, they're coming across music they would never be exposed to and that stops them in their tracks. And that's what you want from music, isn't it? You want to be blown away. You want to be turned on to something new. Yeah, and Paul, actually in Paul's interview, he talks about that being introduced to villagers for instance, through um, through the show and playing on the same the same TV show, that, that mm -hmm. experience as well. That's good, isn't it? And with them yeah. writing together. Yeah, and... yeah. I mean, gosh, what a what a yeah. And that, and actually, that introduced me to Villagers at the same time. And Connor's been on the podcast as well. Fabulous talent. So initially, you were tucked away on a Friday night, weren't you? Like, what was it like? Quarter past eleven, something like that, wasn't it? Something like. Well, actually, the first series was on a Thursday night because we did it off the back of the Late Show, and then yeah, I think we moved to Friday. The third series, I think they put on a Saturday night at eight fifteen. 
which turned out to be another Bermuda Triangle. But, um, <laughs> you know, and it's funny because we look back on those days in the 90s before catch up TV and all the things we're now, you know, take for granted, even share it, file sharing, really, you know, and... And I think, but I think there was because it was the only place uh, as a music lover you had to find this thing, and it had real impact because music lovers and people who bought records would find the show kind of wherever the BBC chose to put it. And I think also Jules and I to this day think it we survived in part for out of sight, out of mind. So you know the corporation didn't notice too much. We weren't costing too much money and we weren't, you know, we, we were shouting loudly about ourselves and, you know, quite quickly, quite big artists were coming on the show, but um, we were enough in the margins that we weren't, uh, you know, a threat uh, to the coffers of the BBC. Now, when we talk about Mr. Weller and later, I think I'm right in saying he's been on more than any other artist. I'm very proud of that. Very yeah. proud. Of that. <laughs> he is, he is, absolutely. You will say that. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that part of his ambition and energy is to be proud of that yeah, yeah no, so the first time paul has been on more than any other people including um one performance where he played piano with ocean color scene very early on didn't sing but was I, I looked at the clips the other day and there he is playing piano on the day we caught the train etc but the first time paul came on he was recording wildwood in 93 i can't remember how it happened but very soon he and i were talking on the phone I don't know if he remembered me from my journalistic days. Obviously, I remembered him. And there was a sense, you know, that the first album hadn't done all that much. And, you know, the Style Council had very much ended with a whimper. And there was a real sense that, you know, Paul was a bit betwixt and between. No one was quite sure how it was going to play out. Yeah, yes, he'd had the, the jam and mattered so much. And the Style Council made so many brilliant records. But, you know, he was probably two or three years off the boil, you might say, and still incredibly young, of course, but um, not young in punk terms because, you know, <laughs> age is a thing. And, you know, everybody in his world, including himself, had said, you know, I die before I get old. And there you are suddenly in your late 20s and thinking, you know, life is long and I love making music. Who am I going to be? But anyway, I had a great chat on the phone and I heard Sunflower and was very excited. I'm not sure I heard Wildwood at that point. And has my fire really gone out? Clearly a meditation on, on you know, those dark years and what do I have left? So we talked about, he was very keen to do something new to fit in with the show. There was a, a young singer-songwriter called Lena Fiagby, and we agreed that he'd do a duet with her on Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. And over the years, Paul, particularly on the BBC, has got the, it's the first of those series of duets. You know, now you think about it, everybody from Adele to Celeste. I think Lena was the first. And sadly, you know, although her first single did okay, she was not really heard of again very much. So cut forward and suddenly, you know, it's, you know, it's July 93 or what he came on and he's on with Jesus and Mary Chain, Planad and AJ Croce, the son of Jim Croce, who wrote Message and the song in a bottle or whatever it's called, a American singer songwriter. Well, it's obvious when we, you know, when you see that clip of Sunflower, it was like, oh my God, he's back instantly. It was so utterly convincing, you know, the drive, the energy. And yet, you know, the music had a new kind of groove to it, you know, in, in Sunflower and the band is so hot and, you know, 
Jules was thrilled. I think he ended up, I'm not sure he played on some player, but he plays on a, one, one or two of the tunes that Paul did. And the show itself turned out to be a bit of a nightmare because the Jesus and Mary chain had this very quiet vocal over, you know, those feedback guitars. And I think there was a new monitor man or or the monitor man for the TV show was looking after that and couldn't get a balance. So every time Jim sang, there'd be this howl. <laughs> and... We couldn't really get a take, and the show is done in sequence, and we'd get to them, and eventually we had to put their songs aside, do the rest of the songs, including Paul's songs, and then come back after supper break, by which time at least one, if not both of the brother, the Reed brothers, had had a few, few too many glasses of wine. And it turned into a kind of confrontation between the show and them just to try and get takes. And uh, there's a great take of them doing Snake Driver, I think it's called. Just with, there's a single camera prowling around Jim's face and you'll hear the occasional tiny howl. But we stayed there till about one in the morning and Paul was in my ear sort of saying, we need to get this done. I want to <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was very... Uh, a difficult record, shall we say. But for Paul's part of it, it was it was the ninth show of our second series, and it just felt like a statement not only for Paul, but for later, you know, that here was this British guy who was going to be a British, already was, and was clearly going to be a British great again, and back in his pomp. There's, I mean, as you would expect, Paul, having been on so much, there's a whole chapter with Paul in the book and an interview with Paul. So him talking about his experiences of later and um, and how much he loved on, being on the show. And that period in the 90s, that comeback that you talked about was, I mean, he seemed to always be on at that point, to the point that we were having specials. There's like a Stanley Rhodes special, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the dates. Actually, after that first show in 93, I don't think he came back till 95, a couple of years later with Stanley Road. And again, that was a big show and Paul opened it with Woodcutter's Son. And by then, later itself had grown. You know, when, when he did Sunflower, there wasn't really an audience there. There were four bands. You know, it was still quite small and intimate. We hadn't really realised that we needed a studio audience for the artists to play to. We hadn't realised how much the bands were going to feed off each other and, and lift the room and lift each other. We hadn't really realised the kind of the engine of the show was the relationship between the different artists on the show. But by the time Paul came back with Stanley Roden, Woodcutter's Son, in 95, you know, he's on with Bubba Miles on and Joan Armour Trading's on and a band called The Vulgar Boatman, Scott Walker's on, Supergrass are on with All Right, tells you right where we are in time. Right. If you look at the clip of Woodcutter's Son, and he, I think he does you do something to me on the show as well. I mean, the band, the audience is virtually falling into the band. The audience are up on risers right round the circle and the, the sense of energy in the room, not only coming off Paul, but the show itself. I think... Pop culture had really reunited with Britpop at this time. And suddenly, you know, everybody cares about music again. And later isn't exactly a Britpop show. We we covered loads of Britpop and trip-hop and, you know, the era, but also we'd have world music, etc. Whereas suddenly this is kind of the TFI era and, and the word. But there's a general sense that youth culture is back and British music is back. And later's agenda included that, but it was always sort of broader, both including the past. and So you've got Scott Walker and Joan Armour trading on, and you've got Baba Mile from Africa on, but you've got Paul Weller and Supergrass. So. But there was a real sense of the energy of the times and that performance in Woodcutter's Son. And, you know, obviously, You Do Something To Me is one of Paul's greatest songs. And then they finish on, I think, Dr. John's Walk Like Gilded Splinters. Jules is on it. The Maracas are out. But the whole room feels like it's levitating. So it's a very different show in two years' time than that first show, Paul. 
football was on because the show itself has found its energy and it's it's on fire. Oh, was certainly on fire. And that, yeah, that, that led to a real connection. So, but not that long after that, we did the early February in 96, we did Later Presents, Paul Wellen. Such a great moment for Paul, but for ourselves as well as a production team. You know, we love what Paul was doing. Janet always shot Paul fantastically well. Paul just felt like somebody in his prime, you know, and it was a very particular band. He had Carleen Anderson and her sister Jalissa on backing vocals and, 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 it has a wonderful sort of soul gospel feel, a lot of that session. Sort of harking back to sort of the backing singers on Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen in the early 70s, you know, that sort of real, or the Stones, you know, that lovely call and response sort of feel. Paul's singing great, it's got so much energy. And then Jules is involved in some of Jules's band, uh, Rico, the trombone player, is on Broken Stones. And we did three specials with him over the years, I think the last in 2008 for BBC Four. And much as he loves later and being on with other bands, some of which he likes and some of which he doesn't, being a man of strong opinions, um, the focus that those specials take. And that first one has that particular Stanley Road energy that is that was extraordinary, you know, and there's acoustic moments with him with a band doing Wildwood in a very intimate way. And then there's moments where the, the changing man and the band are really strutting and... You know, if Sunflower's him back, you know, he's now back at the level he was, you know, at the jam in their peak. And you can see that confidence in the band, but he looks so cool. I mean, that guitar that is, oh, he just yeah. looks so on the money, doesn't he? Yeah, and he's become the changing man, you know, he's found out who he is. And the funny thing is about him coming, you know, he then came on the Hootenanny at the end of that year, and... I think he was a bit dubious about coming on the Hootenanny, but I watched that for, for before we, we talked together today. And he did um, William Bell's Will It Go Round in Circles? And again, you know, if you're a Weller fan, go on YouTube and watch that. And the energy coming off Paul and the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra is extraordinary. You know, he he's really found that sort of primal energy that he's always had and that drove the jam when I first saw him, the whiskey. And it feels like that energy's back in a different form. In a, in a, and Jules's orchestra really capture that and, and match it. And um, even though Paul was probably on with some people he was probably quite unsure about musically and culturally. I was going to say this. I mean, that's, that's the only show you'd ever see Paul Weller next to Mick Hucknall singing together, right? Yeah, exactly. And Brilliant. <laughs> very proud of that. You know, both great singers, but, you know, and both, of course, socialists, but but in many other ways, not necessarily, you'd say, kindred spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a story in the book around um, show 100. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is oh, just how brilliant. can you bring that up that's so cruel <laughs> so this yeah. was april 2000 around the time paul's just released um heliocentric <laughs> tell me about this yeah he's on a roll still i think you know i think also the heavy soul session before that uh, uh and then yeah it was great i i watched i should have been there to inspire you and it's great and heavy soul uh and carlene's there again and was on that show funnily enough but yeah, so we got to our 100th show, which we were incredibly proud of, which, you know, always be wary of something you're proud of in advance. And we had Maloko, we had, who were, you know, happening with Sing It Back, etc. Kirsty McCall, who I'd always loved, he'd made a oh, laugh, sort of inflected yeah. record. A great Hungarian, you know, very much still the later aesthetic. We had a Hungarian fiddle group called Lakatos, who sort of played an you know, incredible hot fiddle, Idlewild. And that show introduced Craig David. I mean, that seems, <laughs> Craig is now in his second career and flying, but yeah. 
This was Phil Meehan, I think, in his debut, and very accomplished singer and musician out the traps then. He seemed extraordinary. We invited various friends of the show. I think Macy Gray was there. Jonathan Ross was there to the taping. And Paul's middle song, he started with He's the Keeper. His middle song was Sweet Pea, which involved an acoustic, I think a six, I can't remember if it's a six or 12 string. Anyway, he started this song and about a minute in, a string broke. Oh, dear. And of course, the show wasn't live to air then. We taped as live. And, you know, we always hated stopping because there's a kind of kinetic energy when the show just rolls along. By this point, we'd all got much better at Janet and the crew, etc. Most of the shows we did would just run straight through. Right, and right. the energy that would come with that, the steam would rise, you know, and the, the sense of people feeding off each other like a musical bouncing ball bouncing around the room. I think that was later had a real genius for that and was unique as a show in doing that. So every time it became a bit more stop start, like Top of the Pops, where they heard the audience from band to band, and we'd find it very painful, as I'm sure with the artists. Anyway. This happened four times in a row. Paul had, I think, a new guitar tech. We'd never worked together. And and he hits the acoustic guitar pretty hard. You know, it's a strum along. And meanwhile, the crowd, this probably took in total 25 minutes. The crowd in the room became more and more restive. And we had this lovely floor manager, old school floor manager called Barry, who'd somehow, as the show had gone on, which it got bigger and bigger. And he was running the floor, telling the bands what was going on, etc. But he also had become like the warm up man. And the interruptions meant he had to talk more and more to the audience, which he wasn't prepared to do. And it became this kind of rather desperate stream of consciousness, you know, and more and more awkward. And I seem to remember Jonathan Ross saying, yelling out more and more unkind things about the BBC, probably about Jules. He loves Jules, Jonathan, but he also loved to take the mickey out of later, particularly for the kind of more eclectic and world music, etc., you know, which I don't think were hit to his taste as a bit of a punk himself. Uh, uh, and the whole thing turned out, I won't say toxic, but a little, <laughs> little, a little, a little damp, you know. And eventually, on about the fifth time, Paul ran Sweet Pea and managed, you know, the string didn't break and the show got done. But it was kind of humiliating. And in fact, we realized we kind of had to modernize after that um, and get a proper independent warm up person to look after the audience, etc. But so it was very tough on Barry. He was a lovely man and a brilliant floor manager, but um, but a bit of a meltdown. Yeah. So, you know, pride, pride comes before a fall, as they say. <laughs> now, look, we should talk Hootenanny, not least because there are plenty of Weller connections, but there's a whole chapter in the book called Enjoy Yourself, It's Later Than You Think, and various different stories around Hootenanny, including this one, which is, just seems ridiculous with the BBC at the time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Having to issue a press release about the fact that Hootenanny was pre-recorded. It's not a live show. And this all came off the back of like a load of crises at the BBC, of which there always seems to be some kind of crisis. But things like there was the monarchy program and the Queen apparently storming off the shoot, but actually it was all out of sequence. There was the BBC radio competitions that were being rigged. There was even the name The Blue Peter Cat, for goodness sake, which the production team ended up doing as opposed to the audience watching the TV. There always seemed to be something going on. A crisis of trust, we BBC insiders call it. Yeah, very much. I think around 2006, 2007, there was a crisis of trust in the BBC, which I think was the beginning, really. It's hard to explain this to somebody in work. The BBC was, in the 90s, felt very, um, as a producer at the BBC, you felt very proud and very loved and and people not only internationally there was a real sense of respect and the value of the bbc was clear obviously in music but elsewhere i think and i think and i'm sure the bbc is partly at fault for this but there were a lot more forces arraigned against the bbc by 2005 you know from the growth of the tabloid the world of murdoch and sky you know and politically increasingly a, a resentment towards a, so i think you had a lot more forces you know turning against the BBC and, you know, particularly people who believe in an utterly free market thinking what, you know, yeah. as many of the current conservative government does, etc. So the climate had changed and a lot of these voices chipping away at the trust of the BBC. And then the BBC itself is this ungainly bureaucratic organisation. You know, I always used to say about later that later slightly endured and prospered despite the BBC, not because of it. And that's the weird dynamic of the way the BBC works. Only the BBC would have allowed later to exist and for the many years it continues to do and it's a sacred place for that. But when you work there, you don't necessarily feel that loved or or, or championed. You know, you read about what John Peel would felt about his tenure at the BBC and yet he's a BBC icon. So yeah, that- yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because also I think even if you look at the, some of the stuff recently with the partiality in the Gary Lineker story. Only the BBC would have a blog on their own website all day long about that story. ITV weren't doing that, Channel 4, no. but the BBC, like the constant updates on their own crisis. Yeah, and actually be quite pretty self-critical of many of its other, you know, its their fellow colleagues, you know, and yeah. and the choices of the institution itself and the Director General. So going back to Hootenanny anyway, so in 2006, the Hootenanny, which had evolved, you know, from being a show which, you know, had no audience in the first one and very I seem to remember you know Chris Evans coming to the first Hootenanny which had uh, Paul Young and Chakademus and Pliers and different <laughs> people on coming there and, and and holding up a paper cut and saying call this New Year's Eve because <laughs> <laughs> we had no booze was allowed being the BBC All right. <laughs> but we'd evolved the show by 2006 so it was again huge full of audience loads of uh, musical guests and when the show started it actually found enough started uh, when they broadcast it after midnight but quite early on we started to have the midnight moment with the uh the Scots guards that Jules said from the start were integral to the proposition is quite right. I always love that moment. People, uh, journalists, etc. You know, the show was never live, and and we we taped. You couldn't get all those acts together in a room at the same time, but it was taped as live. And the feeling you get from watching the Hoot Nanny is authentic. It's a wonderful show to attend. It's a great vibe. Jules says from the start, "Let's live a lie together." 
And it doesn't feel like a lie. It feels like the best New Year's Eve you've ever had when you're attending the show. And I think also when you watch it for many people for many years, because actual New Year's Eve that we all know is often pretty rubbish and, you know, straining to have a good time and failing to hook up with your friends or how do you get home and you've had a few drinks? You know, it's largely once you're about 18 onwards, it's miserable. <laughs> So, you know, the hoot nanny's job is to have an ideal New Year's Eve, etc. And we and we do that by, as I say, convening all this talent and then running it. And the, the midnight moment, the show's always great when it starts. And then when the pipers come out, the whole thing elevates. We put all the hits after midnight and the show, just like a great later, rises with its energy and joy, hopefully. But um, whilst Jules would jokingly say living a lie, in the new climate of the BBC, you know, there was a sense that the BBC was lying to the audience because it wasn't going out of its way to tell people that the Hootenanny was pre-recorded. And so um, we had to uh, write a press release explaining that it was an ideal New Year's Eve. And... Um, in fact, we did a bit of time. We started the show, I think, in 2007 with Jules arriving in the room in, in the TARDIS, trying to make a very sort of a, a obscure joke about time travel, that we were time traveling from December to New Year's Eve. And it's so difficult because my experience of everybody who finds out that the Hootenanny isn't live is disappointed. And to some degree, they feel cheated. But I, I would say it's theater. And it's art and it's imagination and it's taped with good faith in real time, live. What you see is nothing about it is fate. It's just we can't do it on New Year's <laughs> Eve. So, so, and I think it's difficult because also it's time. So, you know, and I can see why people feel because it coincides with midnight. And I think, funnily enough, Paul was on this show around this point. I he think was. That was the Amy Winehouse year, which, was, was, which we must talk Amy about. Amy Winehouse and C6 Steve. So it was a really yes. good year, you know, in, in many, many ways, you know. Yeah, Paul had done the electric proms uh, with Amy a bit earlier on that autumn, I, I seem to remember. You know, again, continuing that tradition that had begun with Lena Fiagbi back in 93, he'd hooked up with Amy and he'd come up with, um, he'd loved Diana Washington's version of... Um, don't go to strangers. And he's so proud of that. Uh, he talks in the interview in the book about, you know, he and Jules, that they're a little V and Amy's between them. Jules is on one keyboard, Paul's on the other. And Paul starts it off and then Amy comes in with her verse and he and Jules look at each other because it's just magic. And yeah, it's know, funny, it's funny that he mentions that because I've mentioned that on the podcast when we were chatting with some of the members of Jules's band who have been on <laughs> and that you can see that look between the two of them and <laughs> just going, Christ, this is like they can set that you can tell they're going, this is just incredible. It is incredible. And she, but it, but it's incredible because both of them I mean I think he loved you know very sad about what happened to Amy but they got on as both you know certain kind of you know London voices you know people they just got each other I think musically hugely and, and you can really feel that and, and it's such a vulnerable vocal at the same time from both of them and such a poignant song and it's what well, it's got it's about 9 million on YouTube views people it's one of those things that people keep going back to probably the biggest thing we've done with Paul in terms of that sort of take up of people recurring and it's 
Understandable, because it you know every time you watch it, it touches you. Oh yeah, it absolutely gets you, doesn't it? You've mentioned like, I've, I've looked at this clip and I've gone back to this clip. Mm. Have you? It sounds like you've got the whole archive there in your front room. Are you not? You're not able to dig into YouTube. You've got the actual stuff. No, right? I do. I, I do. I do just what you do. Oh, okay. <laughs> YouTube and obviously when I was writing the book, one of the things the books does is write about particular performances and quite a lot of detail. Because to me, to me, the whole point of later is it's this focal point where an artist comes to the point in life with. Their music and our job is to light and record it and stage it in such a way you know it's like a tilt at history because that's how i feel about the great music clips i grew up on watching the whalers on the whistle test or i don't know fine young cannibals on the tube or i don't know the stones on top of the pops back in the day you know but tv can really crystallize an artist for you and a song and a performance and we always had this sense that we're trying to create a stage that people can come to and be themselves and do their best work you know and so um i love trying to in the book i try to write about these i write about adele and christine and the queens and arctic monkeys and some of the many breakthrough moments and then some of the legends from eartha kit to al green you know to leonard cohen and some of the world music and then some of those brit pop and trip hop moments from the 90s but i do it by really talking about what brings an artist to that point they're in the later studio where they're at in their lives where we're at as a show and then i was constantly going back and finding the clips on youtube because i'm interested in how we lit them what they're wearing what the ambience of the performance is because they feel like little little moments of music history I love there's so many stories in the book that I mean it's a brilliant, brilliant read, but there's one that I'm I'm gonna ask you to tell the story. It's not really Weller related, although Weller was on that same Hootenai that you just talked about, which was C6 Steve. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, this story is just incredible. And the fact that he initially refused to do the show, that well, then yeah. catapulted him to worldwide fame. So Steve, a couple of people had written to me about Steve and uh, said, this guy's great. You should check him out. As you know, obviously I was always looking for things. And particularly on the Hootenanny, I'd always liked having, as the show grew and became in a way more showbiz, more entertainment, I always liked having something on that was had a kind of bar band feel that was a bit rawer and a bit more um, or like a folk club or something that just felt very real and authentic and intimate. And Alison Howe, who's now the showrunner of Later and who worked alongside me for 20 years, she and I went to see Steve doing a sound check at a working men's club in the Euston Road. And I don't think he had any idea what the Jules Holland show or the Hootenanny was. You know, he was living in Norway with his wife. Um, And, you know, he was already in his 50s. He'd recently had a heart attack and his career had never really taken off. You know, he was playing small gigs like the 12 Bar and like this working men's club. And we went and watched him in soundcheck. And he, Steve is what Steve appears to be. You know, it's a guy there in an overalls and probably a John Deere tractor hat and you know he's, he's smart as hell but he's sort of bumbling around and he gets out the three string trance boogie at the end of his thing and ends up the show plays uh doghouse boogie and ends up either dropping the guitar or throwing it against a piano to his own mortification not that i really knew this at the time and although we chatted and got on you know i think he was appalled i think he felt like it was an audition and that you know he'd been around too long to be auditioning who were these people you, you know so he went back to norway the next day and joe cushley the guy he was signed to a little independent label called him and he said what was that no i'm not coming back you know i hated that it's <laughs> and then then finally they persuade him and he does come back 
We did a sound check, I think, on the day of the show, and he'd convinced himself, as had the other people, including Joe he was working with, that they shouldn't do Doghouse Boogie, they should do Cut My Wings, another track off that record. So Steve and I had to have a conversation on the floor. I always thought really deeply about what artists performed. It was a dialogue, and, you know, I particularly enjoyed the dialogue with Paul. We always talked about every song that was in the special over and over and what songs he was going to do on Later Itself. And I had heard Doghouse Boogie, and I knew it was a song because it's a story song, tells a story of Steve's life. It's got the great groove. It just... It had, it was such a great calling card. And Steve is like, and I had to persuade him. And according to Steve, I told him to, (laughs) I told him, did he want to, did he want to be successful? Had he been successful? No. Did he want to be successful? Yes. Then play the bloody song. (laughs) I don't believe that happened because I don't think I'd ever speak to anyone like that. (laughs) Quite that categorically. But I, I certainly had confidence in what he should do. And so, unusually for Steve, he, he, he did agree, sort of back down. And then when the performance comes around, he can't really hear himself, according to Steve. You know, the lights are in his face. I don't think the monitor system was working that well. But this is what he says in his version of the story. And he and I became friends. And, you know, it's one of the, one of the people who I really love from my, the later, my later journey. But... Um, when you look at the clip again, he looks absolutely like a man in his element. You know, he introduces a three, the trance three string boogie and he's, you know, he's tapping his foot on this license plate, like with a cigar box, you know, and it was just so fresh what he did. And he did it so well. And uh, and there's a cutaway of Amy and another cutaway, I think, of Paul. And everybody looks like they're in shock on the road because it's so raw. And it's so fresh and he looks like a busker who's wandered in from the subway. Yeah. So completely in a way undercuts the more uptown version of the show that's going on. Yeah. So he really stole the show. And, you know, according to Steve's version, he thought it was terrible and he was just waiting to go over and kill Joe who made him do this show. And, and yet afterwards, you know, the room erupts and, you know, he ends up, we all end up in the bar getting pissed and Amy's sitting on his lap and, you know, he has a great night. And then the next day, the then quite nascent, you know, it's 2007, whatever internet is just beginning to become a huge part in our lives. And, people sharing clips on YouTube and it just explodes and his life is transformed. And, you know, I went to see Steve at the Palladium last autumn and before the last song, he stalked for two minutes about it and he's so grateful. And, um, you know, he came back on later many times and the hoot nanny and we'd, we've done lots of things together, but that moment, it's like, he can't believe it to this day. He say he and his wife pinched themselves, you know, because I think I don't believe it's true. I believe talent will find a way out. And that may have been the moment, but I think he would, he would have found, but in his version of events, he was fifties. Nobody had paid much attention to him. It was never going to happen, you know? So, and Jack White talks in the book, another artist I interviewed says, you know, that in a way that's what later with Jules is for, you know, a moment when against all the odds, people are exposed to something that they wouldn't, normally see anywhere and no one knows how it's ha- why it's going to happen with a, I didn't have any sense that Steve was going to be particularly successful that's not the driver you know all that matters is is it going to be great is it going to be a good part of the show let the chips fall where they may you know but for him it was life changing yeah. and for the people who discovered him as well hopefully oh no I love that story honestly it was um, and it's that thing isn't it it's um, you've just got to you know you've got to put it out there Yeah, who knows what's going to connect and how and why and all those things but what a special 
special moment. And yeah. there are a couple of other Weller links I wanted to ask about, and, and we have to talk Glastonbury. I don't know. Yeah, you're right for time for a little bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Don't, don't give yourself too much to edit. Is all. <laughs> well, we're all right, Mark. Um, so you mentioned the 22 Dreams BBC Four special. This was 2008. Yeah. So Eliza Carthy, Little Barry, yeah. who'd been both been on the podcast, Graham Coxon. You were exec producer for that as well. Yeah. 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 Again, that was a long dialogue with Paul getting the guests in. I mean, there was another later presents before that which Paul playing solo acoustic guitar which is which I think was commercially uh, yeah around the days of speed tour yeah yeah and um, which is a great show and the clips on YouTube again are fantastic and he Noel came out and they did that's entertainment together and uh, Jules comes out at the end and they do town called malice just Paul and acoustic guitar and Jules and they're great moments and lovely to see Paul like that I don't think we've really seen him like that or before or since you know he still does acoustic stuff but usually with the band. I love 22 Dreams. I felt again that Paul had taken a huge leap forward and reinvented himself in terms of production. The, the spread of songs on that record, I think, are incredible. You know, so many classic songs, a whole new production approach. He was just reborn. I just wanted to do, we wanted to do more. So we set up, we started doing BBC Four and starting to become, you know, on those Friday nights, a real music lovers. We're building that as a somewhere for people to come and, and, uh, doing a lot. We did lots of these sessions, David Byrne, Yasuna Dor, John Cale, so many great people. So we were for some reason in the studio at Television Center and. I can't remember if it was Paul or I suggested Eliza Carthy. She came and played on Wildwood and Where Are You Go? And then Graham Coxon and some other guests, as you say, and he, you know, played some great old songs. Once again, in TV, it can be a bit of a nightmare. There was a, an invited audience, and then there was supposed to be an audience from Paul's website, competition winners. But the guy who was running it, who was looking after Paul's, for some reason, had not told the online audience the go ahead. And so, the actually, unbelievably, we ended up being 300 audience members short. <laughs> what? Can you imagine this? The most, you know, cause it was such a great show. And I had, of course, I hadn't done this. He, he, he'd forgotten or whatever, just not press the button. And he kept saying, where's the audience? And, you know, we could have got an audience ourselves. So the whole thing was, and I had to go and tell Paul, that's what you do if you're the, <laughs> oh, you, wow. you, you know, and Paul was lovely, very lovely about it, a bit gutted, obviously. But there's always one as well at a Paul Weller show. There was some bald, very big bald guy, and they always want to go and stand right at the front, in front of Paul, and you can almost see them mouthing, please play what jam song. And, you know, and as a TV producer, they're not necessarily the person you want, and they're usually bald as well, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, So this is pretty traumatic. But the show itself, in terms of Paul and the music and the range of the songs, fantastic. And the, the pieces with Eliza... Invi I think Invisible's on that record, isn't it, as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that, that's for me a really underrated song that should be up there as You Do Something To Me. You know, it's one of, the, one of his great love songs, I think. So, yeah, it was a wonderful show, but slightly overshadowed by the trauma of the audience for me as an, as an experience. I just have visions of you just opening the door and just inviting anybody in to fill the space. Well, we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Virtually going, trying to raid the audience from, I don't know, quiz shows in other rooms. It was, <laughs> it, it was mortifying, but, you know, these things happen. That was another one that got released on DVD. You mentioned the Jaws, the Days of Speed yeah, acoustic yeah. one. Yeah, I've yeah. got these. I've got these on DVD. Oh, well, I'd, I'd like a copy of that. I must get one. And the funny thing with Paul, as I say, you know, we it really enjoyed me. 
But my relationship with, with him was always really friendly, but it was also really prof- always been really professional. You know, I'm that much older than him. I'd started as a journalist and I love him to pieces, but it's not an old pals act. Every time I booked him on later, and now Alison books him, it's because he's come up with the goods again. Mm. He doesn't have a free ticket. It's not a crony thing. I hate that side of the music business. And the reason there's such a long and enduring relationship with later is, as I said at the beginning of this, you know, I think he's the British artist who's had the most compelling career and, and come up with the goods over and over again and reinvented himself and had the musical and artistic courage to keep forging ahead. And that's why he's always belonged on later. And we always love it when he comes on and a thrill to see him again. But it's not um it's not um a crony thing or because he's an old pal. Although I like to think of him as an old pal, but first and foremost it's because he because he deserves to be on. And that's important to me, and that's carried on right through, you know, Wake Up the Nation and you know and the last, you know, White Sky going my way, you know, the Saturn's pattern, you know, these are all great records to me. And, you know, I don't think he's faltered, really. And so the last two performances I really remember is the later 25 show we did at the Albert Hall, which was amazing because however many audience we had in the room, we always conceived of later in the round. And finally, we were in the right setting at the Albert Hall with people who, again, lived the later journey, who all seemed really pleased to be there. It was an incredible bill, which spent about a year building with the Foo Fighters and Hall and Gregory Porter and just so many great people on that. Dizzy was on and so many great people as a combination as great French artist Camille. That's right. It was Van Morrison as well. And Katie um, Tunstall, who was Van another... Morrison, you know, Katie Tunstall, yeah. who'd been another great later moment. So it was like, slightly like a greater hit, greatest hits, but with some new music, we introduced Georgia Smith on that show and Callie Uchis. So, you know, it was, it felt like it still was part of the, very much the mission of the show. And Paul was a bit, I think Paul would like, he'd just done the big white sky performance on later in 2015 when, you know, he'd had the strings and the horns and PPR and all done backing vocals. So we, we wanted to do it differently. And, you know, he came and he did it acoustically, slightly reluctantly, but um, did Wildwood and did a wonderful version of the cranes about another, I think, of his really great song in recent times and was very much part of it. And, and then the very last time that, for me, that he's on uh, with me, you know, he's carried on. He did something, I think, for later in lockdown. But uh, the thing was, he came back and did Gravity with the strings. Oh, man. And that was very unusual because he was so particular about it. Uh, he only wants to play one song. And Paul always wants to do more music. And that's always my instinct. I always want people to do as much as possible. Later was always very crowded and jammed with artists and songs and always overran because there's always more music you want to share. But on this occasion, just gravity, you know, which is what, two and a half minutes long with a string quartet. What, did he have somewhere else to be or what? <laughs> no, I just think he thought, I really want this to focus and distill what I do. And this is the song. and. Um, he was very proud of it and nailed it. And we were a bit like, well, that's great, Paul, but normally we do loads more. <laughs> but I think he was probably right. It was such a focused record, wasn't it? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, such a particular approach. And I love that side of Paul. I love the rocking R&B and soul side, but I love that side. But going back to Wildwood of that kind of English pastoral folk, you know, that harks back to John Martin and Nick Drake and, that has always been part of his music and and maybe some early Steve Winwood as well. So yeah, Gravity was a great sort of 
the last exchange for me, not the last time I've seen or spoken to Paul, but the last time, you know, that he was yeah. on the show I was producing. Yeah, well, people have to read the book and they'll hear, they'll, they'll read the story of the creation of this amazing TV show, its journey throughout these artists and these performances and whatever, but also how you get to the end of Laser as well and mm. um, as showrunner. And it's a bit of an emotional moment, I have to say. Well, it's very emotional. You I mean, know, for I, me as a reader, obviously for I, you, but yeah. Then, that, 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 then the book succeeded because I wanted to convey what happens when these things run out you know that was not the show it running out but my relationship with it and why how that happened and that's still a very hard thing to live with because i don't feel any less excited by new music and one the joy of later was always the joy of finding something and sharing it you know whether it's a right song by paul or a a brand new artist that no one's seen before. And, you know, inevitably, I miss that last, just like you'd miss not doing the podcast. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it will happen one day. But yeah, Christ knows what I'll fill my time with after that. But it yeah. feels to me as well, and you might even mention this in the book, that it, it, it would be impossible to launch a TV show like a show like this these days. That you, you couldn't do that now, could you? What you've done. I think there's so many things that are different. I mean, obviously, the rise of the online space, you know, TV isn't as powerful as it was in general. Uh, there are so many rivals in terms of all the little sessions you can come across. Music's moved to, you know, later wasn't a rock and roll show, but for the first 15 or 20 years, it probably had rock bands at its core. And there aren't at the moment any rock and roll bands or very few, it feels like. But, but you know, not that you have to have that. It's about performance, too. And, 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 and you know, it, there's plenty of a broad range of music. But also, I think post-COVID, we're still coming out of the pandemic, you know, where Bands travelled less and many less international acts coming to the UK at the moment. That's just starting to come back. And also, I don't think anybody would give us give you the time to develop something. Later, had the, the joy of growing over many years and evolving. And in one level, it's always been the same. You know, it's about a diverse number of acts brought together in a room in real time, you know, with jewels at the heart to make music together. So the fundamental, you know, the high pit, the pitch of what later is, is constant. But when you look back through the clips, it's kind of amazing. It, just as it's amazing to study Paul's haircuts over the years. <laughs> <laughs> you can look at our different sets, Jules's different haircuts, etc. And you'll see constant evolution and change. And at the same time, while the principles remain very constant, I would say. I had to ask about Glastonbury before we go as well. So this has obviously been such a massive part of your life as well. And the BBC TV's coverage starting 97, this was like a proper muddy year. I remember being there that year. And the year after was even worse, if I remember rightly. And you running all the way through the TV coverage that's expanding onto, you know, not just the TV, but multi-platform, iPlayer. So this incredible thing that I think, you know, personally, I would pay my license fee for the coverage of Glastonbury alone because a, I don't have to go down there and camp. It's an incredible production. And you were running that right the way through to lockdown to 2020, right? Yes. Yeah, I started again, you know, and very quickly working with Alison, who I also worked together on. So it always felt like a team effort. And Janet, who directs later, directs the Pyramid stage. So that core family. And I think also the dialogue, because later is a very intimate experience. And most people, the artists, big artists come to it. We can build a relationship with them through later. And that really helps because... What really has grown at, at Glastonbury is the whole stick, you know, sharing the headline sets and, and, you know, these huge artists and they've grown steadily bigger with the TV coverage. And, you know, certainly that Stormzy moment in 2019 oh. felt like a huge cultural moment. But in general, over the years, uh, those gradual 
we've been able to share more and more of the sets. But in the early years, you know, it, it could often be a nightmare trying to persuade artists that they wanted to share their sets that their managers thought had, you know, commercial value. Oh, we're going to do a DVD instead or whatever. You know, what we've managed to build, I think, with, with Glastonbury and with the same public service values is this thing where unlike any festival in the world, you get more access to more artists and total access. So Beyonce shares her whole set, U2 shares her set, set Stormzy, etc. So Glastonbury is very unusual, I think, you know, that it's on a national broadcaster that it has such total access. And it, that's a kind of matter of trust in the artists, Glastonbury and the TV production team, me and Alison, Janet. There's a trust that so they know they're going to sound good, they're going to look good, they're going to be showcased well. And the nothing like it in the world. I think people in the UK take it for granted, really. For us, it was a long journey of building that trust. You know, there's a early, early on, I remember trying to persuade David Bowie in, in 2000 to share more than the six songs he gave us, you know, three at the beginning of his set, three of his end. That's that set that we've filmed it all and it's now out on DVD and it's one of the great Glastonbury headlining sets. But, it, you know, it was very painful to come off there. There was nothing else to show, you know. Everybody wrote in and complained because, of course, we didn't. We were far too polite to blame David for <laughs> yeah. saying you can't screen any more of this show. Which I, I think I learned after that. We we need to fess up. We can't show this. Not like we because I think probably at the time it came over like an editorial choice that we went to Osamatli at the Jazz World stage, which of course no one editorially in their right mind would have cut off David and his pomp. So you know it has built up to and it built up from very small beginnings, very muddy beginnings, as you say, to. Win Winning the trust of the music community and then winning the trust of the BBC. And Glastonbury has grown with the BBC services. So all the things we now take for granted, like streaming or iPlayer or Red Button or the fact that we show six stages and you can now access all those stages individually as well as go with the TV coverage. Because when we began, we began in a pre-digital world. You know, everything was on tape. To find out what, what was being filmed on the Jazz World or the other stage, runners came with pieces of paper with a set list, and then after the show finished, would run down with a physical tape, hand them into the main scanner for us to whiz through and broadcast a song off tape. So the only scanner that was live was the Pyramid one, So and we wanted to be live as much as possible from the first. So... The way it's evolved is a, is a whole journey in television terms, and it's also a journey of winning the trust of the artists. And it did begin well, because although 97 was a terribly muddy year, you know, BBC Two, Saturday night, Radiohead doing OK Computer, we come on air at 11.30, and three minutes later, we join Radiohead on stage. And although they're having, for them, as, as we now know, a terribly difficult gig, it's one of the great Glastonbury gigs, and we join them just before they go into Paranoid Android. And I mean, broadcasting heaven. And I always said about Glastonbury that Glastonbury, every TV skill from making short films to live broadcast to working with presenters and creating a present and doing those small acoustic performances, every TV skill that you could have, you get to, as a producer, you get to enjoy at Glastonbury to try and convey some sense of this huge, rich tapestry of music and arts. Because it's mm. such a great and wonderful festival. There's nothing like it in the world. And um, 
think the BBC are privileged to be able to share it with the world. It's also that thing, I think, if you were, if this was an ITV thing, if this was with a commercial broadcaster, you'd have those headliners and you'd see your Beyonce's, your Coldplay's, your Ed Sheeran, whatever, but you wouldn't, and, it, and this feels like it has the later flavour to it where you get all that diversity, whether it, uh, uh, and often on mainstream TV, but you can dig into it all anywhere on iPlayer. You get to see so much of it and discover new music. You wouldn't get that if that was uh, an, an ITV, no, disrespect to the, my friend's ITV, but you wouldn't get that if it was a commercial production, would you? No, when you get breaks and and you know you'd be pushing all the time. We we've always tried to give a broad sense of of Glastonbury, and once again through those acoustic slots in the BBC, introduce new music. And it's been having the jazz world stage is a bit like you know having the more global acts that are on later, or the folk acts, or the jazz acts. You know, it's always had a very broad remit, and there's a natural you know there's a Glastonbury is driven by a higher purpose in terms. Terms of charity, etc., and it's 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 charitable causes, etc. It has a kind of ethos that's very much in keeping with the BBC, and I think the same ethos of you know comparing comparing huge mainstream acts alongside the you know the best of the new cutting edge music or music that falls beyond a commercial remit, and so I think its values and 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 laters are absolutely of a piece and so it's it's a great marriage i think and are you no longer involved in that oh i'm not i'm quite old now and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but you're gonna miss that seat your pants broadcasting as i say my colleague alison and i who are very much of one mind alison now runs it so um i am planning to go to glastonbury this year and i am thinking of writing a book about that journey to to match the later book because they both in different ways as i say the glastonbury journey from a pre-digital world to the world we're in now and and the, the journey of you know winning the, the viewers and, and the artist's trust is is a great story and it's also the story of in a way something that was very left field and alternative as music often was in the 90s sort of becoming accessed and becoming mainstream in a different way really mm-hmm. you know the, the way glastonbury is perceived now and the way it was perceived when we first went there couldn't be further apart but but they're indicative of a greater shift in the culture it's like when you consider the premier league started in 1992 and you think about how we perceive football and how it's part of the culture now compared with both on television and in the real world it's not the same journey but it's it's not a dissimilar journey. Well, I look forward to reading that book when you when you get through it, Mark. You know, <laughs> no pressure, but you know, whenever you get to it, that's absolutely fine. I have two final questions for you before you go. Honestly, this has been such a joy chatting with you about these stories, and there's so much more we could dig into, I'm sure as well, right? Um, but look, two final questions for you. Uh, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. We didn't really even cover the Style Council, did we? But go on, yeah. What will you go with? Gosh, well, I think it would be a different song every day, but uh, we haven't talked about this style council, but I remember being so thrilled when um, Beat Like a Child came out. There's something so effervescently joyful about that. And as as we said, Paul wasn't known for writing joyful songs in a way in the jam, urgent songs, but um, that was a special song to me. And so today, and another day, it would be complete. There's so many songs, aren't they? Uh Today it'd be it'd be speak like a child celebrating its fortieth anniversary just recently. There you go. Can you believe that? <laughs> Final <laughs> question. So, purpose of this podcast, as you'll know, purpose of this podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. I gave up being a radio presenter. That was my one big regret, never getting to interview Weller. If it happens at the end of this podcast series, I mean, what are we on now? Like episode hundred and forty something. Um, if it happens at the end of this podcast series, what should I ask him, Mark? 
Gosh, there are so many questions to ask, Paul, because I suppose I've always been fascinated by how the songs come to him. And I know there were periods when the songs dried up. And so I I would want to ask him about how a particular song came to him and what that feels like, because that's what he lives for. You know, inspiration, creativity. But like anybody who does that, they probably, as that early song, that first later session says, has my fire really gone out? You know, I don't think he lives in fear of that. I think maybe for one period he did. And I so admire the way he's kept going. You know, the fact he suddenly gave up the booze and everything to just really focus on what he loves and does best. So I'd want to know about inspiration, what he thinks it is and where it comes from. Big, mysterious question, eh? That's a great question. You can tell, you know, you can tell you did all that for a living as well at one point, right? Uh, hey, man, this is so good. Thank you so much for the book. It's a fabulous read. Honestly, people need to check out the story later, uh, not just for the Weller connections, but the whole journey of that incredible TV show as well and the story arc and everything in there. But Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. All the best. My thanks once again to Mark Cooper for joining me on the podcast. Do check out that book later with Jules Holland, 30 Years of Music, Magic and Mayhem. You'll find all the details in the show notes for my podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Don't forget to spread the word, share this episode on your social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It all helps to find new listeners to this podcast show. And whilst you're there, you can get yourself into my store, get yourself official merchandise from the podcast, and you can buy a virtual coffee to show your support. Thank you to Sean Wilson, who's done exactly that over the past week. Hello, Sean. Hi to Rich Gill. Hello, Rich. Hello, Peter E. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Martin Bonhom. Hi to Mike C. Mark Josling, thank you to you for your virtual coffee, sir. Hello, as always, to Simon Cartledge. Hi, Simon. Thanks for your virtual coffee. Hello, Martin Glover. Thanks to you, sir, as well. Get involved on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com, and you can get in touch on social media as well. You'll find me on Twitter, at wellerfanpod, or on Instagram and Facebook. Search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.